I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party! I'm so sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where there are so many men everywhere. So many. They're everywhere. They're outside right now. I'm Karen Peterson, joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> are the are the men are the men with you in the room right now, Karen? <laughs> are they <laughs> They're not. They're outside. <laughs> Thank God. Oh, <laughs> that Jesus. will all make sense in a minute if you don't know what the heck I'm talking about. <laughs> this is not intentional. It this wasn't. is not intentional. When we decided to do this this episode, I like. I don't think either one of us were just like we should we should do movies that focus specifically on male relationships. Yeah. But we, but it, we did. It, yeah, and and honestly, when we decided on this particular topic this week, it kind of makes sense that this is what happened. So uh, this week we will be talking about three female-directed noir films. So um, they end up centering on, not centering entirely, uh, one of them does, three mm-hmm. of two of them do, um, on men and their relationships, good and bad. So we're gonna to get to that in a minute. First, Lauren, how are you? I'm good. I'm yeah. good. It is it is lovely here in New York City. We had ridiculously warm weather yesterday, and all of New York was outside. It was very exciting. Oh, fun! It's uh, it's been beautiful here. It's supposed to cool off, and then I think later today we're getting um, like a huge, massive rainstorm. So we're super Sometimes. prepared for that. That'll be great. No problems. <laughs> because yeah la does great in the rain <laughs> that's what i hear about la did like, you guys that's... hear about the big freeway fire that happened a couple weeks or like last week no i wasn't sure if it <laughs> like it was huge news here so it's one of those things where i'm like is this big news everywhere i don't know there was this um this storage facility under the freeway like it going into downtown Los Angeles where there was this big fire, which they have determined was arson and it damaged the freeway so badly that they said it was going to take three to five weeks to repair. And it's this major, yeah, it's this major corridor. So it's like that being shut down for three to five weeks has massive implications like for traffic and it causes all kinds of problems. But uh, they just updated that the other day and said, oh, actually, we're going to be able to fix it by Tuesday. <laughs> so I will be I avoiding like, that freeway. <laughs> I feel like you kind of have to. Um, it's like, no, that's not that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm still not quite sure how it goes from three to five weeks to three to five days. <laughs> but uh, uh, everybody working around the clock well, well it's like yeah. I, I remember i remember i think it was the first year or two that i had moved back to new york and um they were still they were planning on shutting down the l train 
uh, that because because of the amount of damage that had been done by Hurricane Sandy, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing with the L train is that if you don't know New York, you might not necessarily be aware of this. The L train is literally the only train that goes between Manhattan and Williamsburg. Um, and Williamsburg, of course, is very populated with a lot of, of people, a lot of hipsters. It's a very populated area. And it was hilarious because you're just like, so we're, we've, we're literally cutting off Williamsburg from the rest of the city. Like <laughs> there is no, you cannot get into Williamsburg and you can never leave Williamsburg. And they finally, they didn't wind up shutting it down completely. They had like, I don't remember exactly how they worked it out, but it was one of those things where everyone was like, you can't, you can't actually just isolate Williamsburg <laughs> for the next year or so. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Crazy. So, yeah. So it's they worked it out somehow, which it actually kind of reminds me of back in the 90s when we had a big earthquake here and there were a couple of freeways that collapsed and uh, not entire freeways, but like big overpasses. There were five of them. And one was kind of not on the same exact stretch, but along this area, this part of the city. And uh, it was supposed to take like six months or maybe a year or something like that. No, I think it was supposed to take 18 months to repair. And the state offered the construction company bonuses for every week that they finished early and they finished it in six months. So they knocked an entire year off of the project. Yeah. Which was like, good. Yeah. Get your money as long as you do a good job and it's not going to collapse again. You know? (laughs) So, and it hasn't. It's been fine. Yay. All right. (laughs) They did a good job. It's been 30 years. (laughs) So anyway, sorry. That's enough uh, freeway talk, I guess. That's a a traffic report from (laughs) New York City and uh, and, and L.A. So we do the weather report. We do the traffic. And then we're a film podcast. Right. Yes. People want to hear what it's like in our neighborhoods. That's what I tell myself. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about some movies, should we? Yes. All right. So this week we thought it would be fun to talk about a couple of of Noir. We're still in November and we love November. And this week we wanted to talk about a few that were directed by women. So um, we are very excited about this. The first one, we've mentioned this on the pod. We Actually, we've mentioned, I think, all three of these at some point or another, but we've never done a really deep dive into any of them. Uh, so the first one we're going to talk about is The Hitchhiker from 1953, directed and co-written by Ida Lupino. This is definitely her best-known film. It's mm-hmm. been um, adapted a couple of times. Not necessarily any better than her film. In fact, I would say definitely not better than her film, personally. But um, But yeah. The the basics of The Hitchhiker, you've got this guy on the loose. He's an escaped convict and he's going around hitchhiking and then he'll like kill the people that pick him up, rob them and not even take their cars, just take their money and stuff and 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 uh, keep going on his way. And he makes his way down to Mexico where he runs into two guys who are on a fishing trip and um two Americans who are down in Baja for, for a fishing trip. So, uh, and he 
hitches a ride with them. He doesn't kill them right away. He spends a lot of time talking to them and kind of toying with them along the way. And just that constant menacing threat of like, yeah, I'm going to kill you when this is all done. But, you know, let's pull over and have some lunch first. (laughs) So, uh, Lauren, what are your general thoughts about Ida Lupino as a filmmaker? And um, and then we can talk specifically about this movie about the hitchhiker oh i think the hitchhiker was the the first side of lapina film that i ever saw which makes sense it's it's in the public domain it's been kind of it's been the most as you said widely available um and widely seen of her of her films and i think it's because it, it's one it's the only one that really fits perfectly into like an, the noir genre um whereas the other films are much more social problem films um and i'm not knocking that at all because they are fantastic movies i think the only other one that that kind of fits in the same in the same way into a genre is um is the trouble with angels which is a very different film for uh for ida lupino but um but this she is such a she's such an intuitive director i think in a lot of ways she she particularly in this film she gets at the the claustrophobia and i saw a number of people mention the fact that you know so many film noir are set in cities they they take place in like these the dark alleys the closed rooms and the the smoke-filled places this one really does emphasize the isolation of this wide open country and how these men are not surrounded by people at all but are in this constant constant danger so she gets at this claustrophobia of this wide open space um, because they have they're so isolated because so much of the film takes place in the car and is just basically the three of them, the two the the two men trying to figure out how to escape or what they can possibly do to stop what's happening um, and the viciousness of of Myers, um, the criminal and everything that's happening like within his head it's such a it's such a short film so it's like an hour and 10 minutes hour and 11 minutes and is so well made and so taut and just really you you get into it almost immediately and it really never lets up until the final frame and then it's just over there's not a lot of like tail end of this film there's not a strong moral that we're now going to talk about what happened or anything like that it's just kind of like that's it it's done um and it's a very well made. It's a very sharply made film, and I think that as as we're going to talk about a little bit, the the focus on these masculine relationships and psychological the the psychology of these men, um, I think, is really fascinating to to watch, and particularly coming from the perspective of a female filmmaker and a female writer. Yeah, um, it actually opens with a um with text where it's like this is a true story this happens all the time and over 70 minutes you're gonna feel this terror and so it really brings you right into the beginning of like this could happen to you which makes that automatically just a little bit scarier you know it really sets the sets the tone for um this is this is realistic it's i mean it's a little bit exaggerated probably but um but it it's definitely something i've thought about you know when i'm out driving across the desert by myself sometimes and like what would i do if i saw someone out here by themselves you know and um 
Yeah. Well, it's, so. it's based it's based on a guy who did actually go on a murder spree yeah. in the in the the early 1950s. So there is there is, I, I mean it's not I don't think that this specific event is right. is is what happened, but um but yeah, it's it's that particularly I think of the 1950s when hitchhiking was very common and was something like, you know, now I think most of us will th- think multiple times before picking up a hitchhiker for a mm-hmm. lot of different reasons. Um, but in the 1950s and in the 40s, it wasn't that uncommon to to have hitchhikers. And particularly in the way that this one is set up, they see that his car's broken down. Right. And they say like, oh, do you need, we can give you a ride to the next gas station or whatever. And that's how he winds up in the car with them. So it is this it's this very natural response that they have that, and a very caring response. And throughout the film, they're shown as being both of, both of them are very caring men. They're kind people. Mm-hmm. And he targets them. And in fact, he uses their kindness in a lot of ways and their care for each other. Um, and is like, you know, kind of claims that to be a weakness. Yeah. One of the things that really impresses me about this film, and there are a lot of things that impress me about it, but in the in the course of 70 minutes, which is not a lot, that's like the first act of a Scorsese film. Um it's <laughs> <laughs> thank you for laughing at that. Um it's uh you you get introduced to how dangerous this guy is, um, and you get introduced to these two friends and and how you do see how kind they are pretty early on and like you get this little bit of of their friendship um before it really gets going but it's also still really compact so it it doesn't waste any time but yet you mm-hmm. get you get all the information that you need and it's done really well it doesn't feel like any part of the story is shortchanged either it actually feels to me like if this movie had been longer, it would have just been too much, um, which yeah. I think is really a credit to Lupino as a director, to her editing, like to the editor, to, you know, to the entire process of, of this film. Yeah, I mean, I think the the film sort of opens with we get these little snapshots of Meyer's crime spree. Right. Mm-hmm. And we know what he does. And so we know who he is. Um, and we never, we don't see his face for, for like in the initial introduction of him. We see his feet. Right. Um, and we hear like gunshots and we hear people screaming and things like that. And so it is, it's very cinematic. You know, it's not like, let's just now tell you the story of Myers who did this and this. It's, it's very like, you know, we get these little scenes. And then as, as you say, we get the scenes between, um, I'm trying to remember their names right now. Uh, Roy and Gilbert. And, and Gilbert, yeah, who are friends. And the whole thing is that, like, there, there's. I found it interesting. There are things that Myers assumes about them. He's just like, "Oh, you guys are going down to Mexico to get some women and all this." And the conversation that they actually have is just like, "Oh, you know, I don't really feel like going here. Why don't we go there?" And you know, hey, you remember that that woman? Well, she's probably dead, but it would be nice to go and have a drink and like. There, it's this very like normal, chill experience. And we also get the information about them that they were both soldiers, that that's how they know each other, um, that they are like friends, but they haven't really like been out running around a great deal together. This is the first trip that they've really taken together. Um, and they're just sort of out and in, in enjoying themselves and then they happen to to fall across this guy and it's done like you're saying very quickly 
but we feel for those two men immediately. And we know what kind of a man Myers is also immediately. And so everything's set up as soon as they meet, it's like 10 minutes into the film, they all meet and we're like, okay, here we go. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it it's developed so well. And then, so once, once they pick up Myers and you, we know, as an audience, oh no, like don't let him in your car, but it's too late. And everything just really grows from there. And there's like, it starts with tension, but just keeps growing because you really don't know what the outcome's going to be. He's sitting there the whole movie telling them, I'm going to kill you. We're going to get to this point and I'm going to kill you. But then he's playing with them so much. And it's what's interesting about it is the fact that there's no sense that he's been doing this with any of his other victims. Like he kind of yeah. gets picked up, kills people and robs mm-hmm. them right away and moves on. But for, so there's something about these two guys that he just keeps playing with them. It's like it's it becomes this fun game for him. Um, and and it just really adds to this this sense of creepiness. But like something yeah. really interesting happens where because of the fact that it's these three men traveling together in this intense situation yeah i i think one of the things i was struck that i was struck by in watching it this time is there is this sensation that he's he's playing with them but he's also proving something to himself and to them there's something about the two of them that he has to prove i'm a tough guy Mm-hmm. I'm a, I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. I have a gun and that gives me power and I have all the power and you guys are just weak. And he and he kind of he reiterates that a couple of times throughout the film that as it, it becomes more and more serious in a certain sense for him, that he needs to prove to them that he has power and that he has control over them and that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and they can't do anything about it. Um, and mm. that's where it gets it gets into that that whole thing that he you, this exploitation of their friendship and also just their care, because there are a number of places where they could start shouting. They could start telling people, you know, the, this guy's crazy. He's going to try to kill us. And of course, the result is going to be he's going to start shooting people and he might shoot them, but he also might shoot these totally innocent bystanders. Mm-hmm. Um, that he that they're asking for help from. So there's this constant tension about are they going to do that and you know they're not there's there's one point in um fairly late in the film where they go into a a grocery store and there's a little girl and her father um who are running the grocery store and they come very close to sort of like throwing things at Myers to kind of escaping from him and then the little girl goes and stands next to Myers just totally on accident and they decide like we're not going to we're not going to do this because we can't put these people in danger. Whatever happens to us is separate from the fact that we cannot endanger them. And it ultimately helps them because the grocer kind of clocks what's going on. Right. And uh, and it's part of that that like kind of leads the the police and the, the Mexican authorities to track him down. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah. then there's the scene where is it a bar they go into where Myers doesn't speak any Spanish and one of them does. And so is speaking yeah. to the bartender in Spanish, which Myers cannot understand. But even then, he doesn't say like, hey, this guy's holding us hostage. Call the police. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't. Uh, even then, he doesn't. And and because of everything that's happened, 
at least for me, I still get the sense that that is is because he's at that point resigned to we're going to die. Why should anybody else come down with us? You know? Yeah. There, there's this inherent concern for each other and an inherent concern for other, other human beings outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, Myers, even at one point, I think says, you know, one of you would have been able to escape, yeah, but you wouldn't leave the other. And that's part of what's happening is that they won't leave each other. They won't abandon the other one, even when I, and I even think that there's, there's one point where they find they do escape from them and they're running. And um, I think it's, it's the Edmund O'Brien character. Roy basically tells his friend, keep going. And he doesn't, he comes back. He tries to, he tries to help them. And that's what winds up getting both of them caught. Um, but it's that sense that they won't abandon each other, which is something that Myers uses, but it's also something that he underestimates. He thinks it's a weakness and it, it winds up being the thing that keeps them strong and that ultimately leads to his capture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how do we think that the film would be different if this had been a couple instead of two men like in the newspaper clippings that we see at the beginning yeah most of the victims are couples um and but but it totally changes the dynamic when it's when mm -hmm. it's two men i mean i i think that you there's always going to be the threat of sexual violence um Mm -hmm. that that's and there's a little I'm not going to say that, oh, that's that's a major undercurrent here, but there's a little bit of that there. There's it's that that kind of power dynamic, I think, that um, is operating that Myers, that that whole sort of thing, enjoying him, enjoying making them endanger the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a little a little tinge of that. But I, I think that what works so well about this being about three men instead of, you know, two two men and, and a, a woman, et cetera is that it does become more about the two men caring enough about each other and expressing their masculinity that way. Um, there's a, they they do not consider themselves to be weak because they care about each other. Whereas it would be much more, I guess, kind of simplistic, pat, et cetera, if it was a, a couple, a mar- you know, a married couple or boyfriend, girlfriend, et cetera. Um, that because then there would be this whole like, oh, you know, I have to protect her. She has to protect me, things like that. Whereas when you get the kind of male friendship, you have another dynamic going. Um, mm. that, that's, that's just my opinion. Yeah, no, I think so too. There've been a couple of remakes of this or, or adaptations of it. One, I believe it was a guy traveling by himself that pitch, picks up a hitchhiker and another was a young couple and um it's been a long time i've seen both of them it's been a very long time since i've seen either one and the dynamic is completely different in both cases mm-hmm. like there's just something really um particularly um i don't know the right word but i don't know there's just something particularly interesting about the way that lupino explores this this male friendship and mm-hmm. how that dynamic gets them through this situation you know and and even when you yeah. have a scene like oh, the gun scene when um Myers makes one of them hold that can and the other one shoot at it yeah. oh it's so intense and you can really see just the the fear and the devastation 
um, on both of them, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's different when it's two friends than when it's two people in love. It's, it's just such a a different dynamic and Lupito understand Lupino understands that and really uses it to such great effect and gives us this, this film about these strong men in a terrifying situation and lets them be terrified. They're not brave. Mm-hmm. They're not, or, I mean, they're brave, but they're not um, pompous. They're not, you know, full of hubris. They're, they're not like, we can totally take this guy. They're like, we're in a situation that we're, we can't get out of. And, yeah. and I just, I think she uses that so well that it makes it for, it makes for such a, a compelling watch because of the fact that, um, these these two guys, um, we really are rooting for them. We want them to get out alive, and we want Myers to get caught or killed um, because of the fact that we care so much about these two men, and we're not sitting there being annoyed by just their, like, oh, well, this is no big deal, or we can take him, or whatever. You know, it just, it really makes yeah. for such a, such a, a compelling film to watch. It really does. And the time, the point at which they begin to crack, right? So and particularly the, uh, the Roy character really begins to show, show the, the cracks and, and everything, mm-hmm. but it makes sense. It doesn't feel like, ah, oh, I'm a big tough guy and I'm going to beat you up. Right. It's very much like, you know, the, it's been going on for days. They're going insane. They're like, we're going to die when we get to wherever it is that this guy is taking us. And he begins to break apart and his friend is the one that kind of says to him, we have to hold on. We have to hold it together um, for each other. We have to, we have to keep on going because, you know, even if we die at the end of all of this, at least, you know, there might be a chance that we won't and that we'll be able to escape. Um, and, and I, I do think it would also be different if we had like a, a, a romantic couple um, being subjected to this, that, this whole thing about Myers essentially being alone. And he talks about that he's been alone his entire life. He has, he doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have anyone who cares about him. You know, he says his parents abandoned him from when he was born, right? All of this. And that he has formed this personality that says that being alone, that being a man alone is power and strength. And essentially these two men who aren't alone, who are, do have each other, um are saying like no the this power and strength comes from the fact that we're not alone and that we support each other and that we can begin to crack and the other one will hold us together we don't have to be powerful and strong and lone wolves to survive mm-hmm. um and it, it ultimately and it leads to their triumph again it's their care for each other that enables them to survive yeah it's true I also just just as a total aside, I really like the fact that there's a lot of Spanish dialogue in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot like the Mexican authorities are very much the heroes in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, and that's unusual to see in an in an English language film. Um, yes. We don't get any translations or subtitles or anything like that. And there's also none of that like Hollywood sort of they start talking in Spanish and then shift to English because the audience doesn't understand Spanish. They're there's just like these swaths of Spanish dialogue and we understand what is happening through the context of the scene, right? Whether or not you speak Spanish. Um, but it does a really good job at, at like creating that, at creating that kind of distance, but also like really making you 
sympathize and understand those characters and like and pretty much every that's the other thing pretty much every mexican that they meet is helpful (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. like is like hey dude like i think something was wrong here we should call the police like there's something going on it's very not racist which is unusual for a film in 1953 yeah it's so true and it also was very much my experience of going through that same part of mexico i was like yeah these people are very nice so it was interesting because i was watching it again you know this week to prepare and it'd been a while and they were talking about certain places and i was just like oh yeah i've been to san felipe oh i've yeah we went through mexicali we're driving down i know exactly where they're at and i was looking at it and i was just like yeah this is exactly what it was like when i was there these people are so nice and uh so friendly and and yeah it just it was good to see that yeah exactly in films of this period you're so used to seeing mexican characters as being criminals we represent Mm -hmm. as criminals or shady or like out for their own good or all of this and like literally everyone that they come across in some way helps them right um even if they don't completely understand what's going on in the moment Mm -hmm. uh and the film really takes care to represent that yeah and that's 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 just uh, that's unusual that's not something you see in films of this period it's so true it's so true i was a little confused at one of the radio broadcasts where they said that they found a that, that they'd had reports that Myers had been seen in Portland because they found a Portland victim in Imperial County, California. And I was like, that's down by the border. Why didn't anybody ever think like maybe he crossed over the border? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they got, they've got there eventually, thanks to the Mexican authorities and mm-hmm. the Mexican people and not Americans who are not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's it's uh overall it's it's such a good film and again it's like a tight compact 70 minutes and well worth well worth it if you have not seen this movie it's available on prime and um when it leaves prime it'll pop up somewhere else it's this this is one that's usually available to stream somewhere so and it's well worth your time yeah it's it's public domain and and it also it's been released on blu-ray by kino uh and is just like it's it's nice to also see it just in a really good print as well Mm -hmm. um because there are a lot of public domain prints floating around which are fine right to to watch it for the first time or whatever but getting to see it in a good print it's like she she's a really fantastic filmmaker and uh it's good to see that just like the the cinematography itself yeah her use of tension her use of light and dark shadows and and light and it's it's it all really blends into such a such a great film. So, yeah. So the next one we want to talk about is also from the 50s. It's just three years later. This is the 1956 film Eyewitness from Muriel Box. And um, this is a British film about a woman named Lucy who... Um, we'll get into the details of why, but basically... Uh, she comes home, has a fight with her husband, runs out into the night, ends up witnessing a crime and gets hit by a bus. And um, <laughs> that is where the story begins. <laughs> you know, describe, I know that that's exactly what happens in this film, but when you describe just like, Jesus Christ, this poor woman. Yeah, <laughs> she's <laughs> having the worst night of her life. She really is. She's really tired, comes home from work. She's like, well, she, she gets hit by a bus. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's really where the movie begins. But before we get there, um, let's talk a little bit about Muriel Box because she's not a director that we've talked about much on this uh, this podcast. And like I do Lupino, who we've talked about a bit. Um, but uh, what are some things that we should know about Muriel Box? Well, you know, again, this is someone that I, she's been on my radar a little bit. I know that the BFI has been doing um, some exhibitions of her films, and she's one of those filmmakers that has been kind of pushed to the side. And some of it was because she she primarily made films, which as as a director, she primarily made films for um, the Arthur Rank Organization, which is a British film studio and a pretty well-known British film studio. But most of her films are pro- essentially programmers. They're they're B pictures. Um, they're not they're not intended to be, you know, these big, long epics or anything like that. She's not being the, given those kinds of films. Um, but she was also a screenwriter. She wrote, I, I think the most famous film that she wrote is um, The Seventh Veil, her and her husband, uh, Sidney Box. I believe they were uh, nominated for an Oscar for that. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a fantastic it's a that's a fantastic film. Like if you've never seen The Seventh Veil, it's a Val Loop, I believe Val Luton produced it. It's a it's a really well-made film. Um I I also was pleased, pleased to note that she worked on one of my favorite of Brit of Hitchcock's British films, number 17. Uh she worked for for Hitchcock on British International Pictures. And I was like, oh, Muriel Box, yay. <laughs> uh I I love number 17. I am not gonna justify my love for number 17. It is not a great film, but I love it. Uh and I think it's very cool that that Muriel Box worked on it with Hitchcock. I've never seen um, it. I I will not say that it is worth seeing, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I will at some point we could talk about number 17 <laughs> and I think and somewhere on this podcast I'll be like okay let me explain why I love this movie <laughs> um but she was so she was a screenwriter she was a director she had a, a very long career and um much like Ida Lupino she very much favored stories that were told from a female perspective and what are typically referred to as social problem films so stories about um, the experiences of women, but also things like, you know, abortion and sexual violence and um, be, being female <laughs> generally in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and so she had this this quite quite long career and a lot of her films are now finally being seen and the, like the BFI is restoring them and she's becoming better and better known. She's very much in a lot of ways, she's kind of a, a, a canny comparison to, to Ida Lupino, in, except that she was very much operating within Britain's version of the studio system and producing films out of that. Yeah, I am really not familiar with her work, but um, this was definitely the first of her films that I'd seen, but I'm so glad that I did. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Eyewitness. Um like I said, this was from 1956. Uh, this does start with a woman named Lucy, who uh, is played by Muriel Pavlo. Pavlo. And uh, she comes home from probably a long day of work to her husband, Jay, played by Michael Craig, to discover he has surprised her with a brand new 21-inch TV. And... Isn't she so excited about this TV that he bought for her? No, she is not. 
Why is she not excited, Lauren? Well, she she says very clearly why she's not excited, Karen. <laughs> she's not excited because they don't have any money. And all of their furniture is is literally rented. They're paying off. They're making payments on all of their furniture. She says to him, we don't own anything. Yeah. Nothing in this house is ours. We're making payments on everything. And now you've bought more things on credit and you're claiming it's for me. And so she basically just tells him, like, you send that back or I'm leaving. And he doesn't want to disappoint her brother. So he cares more about her brother's feelings than her feelings. And it's just like, yeah, I'm not taking the TV back. He'll he'll think I'm dumb or whatever. And so she's just like, fine. So she leaves and goes to the movies and which is what I do when I'm mad. <laughs> I go to the movies. <laughs> and um, but during the movie, she decides to call her husband. And it seems like maybe she's not necessarily having a change of heart, but maybe feeling a little bit like bad about the way she left, perhaps. And so she tries calling him, but he doesn't answer because he's gone out because he's mad at her too. He's mad at her for being mad at him. And uh, so on her way back toward the theater, she passes a robbery in progress and they see that she has seen it and they try chasing after her. And that is when she does get hit by a bus. And um, that is when the story really gets going because the two men who committed the robbery um need to find her and silence her because you know if she wakes up and tells people what she saw then uh, they're going down for murder because one of the criminals does not know that the other guy murdered the theater manager Mm -hmm. so uh it's it's such a so most of the most of the action of this movie actually takes place at the hospital as lucy is yeah is unconscious um she's not quite in a coma because she keeps waking up and saying stuff but she's unconscious from for a lot of it and these two men are outside um outside the hospital trying to get in and um and make sure that she can't wake up and and rat them out so uh, a lot of interesting things happen um during this this basically it's all set in one night and you've got the husband jay who's just kind of out at the bar not really having any idea what's going on until he gets home and his wife's not there and he realizes you know i gotta go find her so there's just like all these elements happening at the same time so lauren what are your what are your thoughts about eyewitness I this movie really surprised me because I had come across it a couple of times. I've been like, oh, that I, that's something I should watch. I know Muriel Box. Yeah, I've seen the Beachcomber. Like I should watch it at some point. And then we actually then I actually watched it. And I was like, why have I not watched this movie before? Because <laughs> I I just I think it's so well constructed. Mm-hmm. You get like it's a coincidence in so many different ways that like, you know, she's mad at her husband. She goes to the movies. She happens to be it's it's very much I she happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Very much. Yeah. And and so this this kind of cascade of events happens and it affects so many different people. Um, and then you get these the sequences at the hospital where, you know, she's unconscious for most of it. It's interesting that you've got your central female character who's unconscious for a good bit of the film. So it becomes more about the people around her, uh, not just the, the criminals who are after her, but 
the other patients, um, the doctors, the nurses, all of these things that are kind of happening, and none of whom know what she has witnessed because she hasn't woken up. They don't even know who um, she is. Yeah, and and so there's so many points of tension, I think, throughout the entire film. And the film develops those points of tension really, really well. So you've got the husband who's out and you're just like, okay, when is he going to figure out that his wife is missing? Um, You know, when are they going to figure out her identity? Is she going to wake up? Are the criminals going to succeed in like killing her before she can tell what she saw? Is she even going to remember what she saw? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of these different things that like play against each other really, really well. And I mean, just in watch, this was the first time I watched this film, just in watching it, I was so tense the entire time. I was like, but how are they going to get out? But no, he's outside the window, lock the windows. <laughs> you know, it was, it was very, very good. I think at building that, that tension in a lot of different points and in a lot of different ways without focusing too much on one element that you kind of forgot about the other elements. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, at, watching this, I, I I was like, this is this is actually a great film. Like I, I was expecting kind of basic, you know, thriller programmer. And it, I, I would actually say that it's as, just as good as The Hitchhiker um, for what it does. I agree. And yeah, it, it's, it's a, I really loved it. I really thought that this was like, this was a really accomplished work. Yeah. And this is another one that's under an hour and a half and does so like it introduces the characters that you need to meet so quickly, but so thoroughly that you know exactly what you need to know to follow this story and to be invested in in different characters. And there's even time for like this love story with this nurse. And um, and it's it's mm-hmm. it's just so it's again, it's well paced it's um but it's really thrilling like yeah it, there are parts where it's pretty creepy and it's like what is going to happen here i really don't i really don't know how this is going to turn out you know like i mean it's the 50s it's you know you assume that the bad guys will get caught but the tension is so well developed that you're never mm-hmm. totally sure that that's exactly what's going to happen you know and then you also have mm-hmm just such such interesting relationship dynamics between multiple characters so you have lucy and her husband who spend the entire movie apart because of this fight that they've had a completely justified totally made <laughs> makes sense fight and people who are like why do you keep harping on that it's because i read a letterbox review that made me mad so <laughs> yeah paul <laughs> rewatch the movie paul <laughs> Anyway, um, but you also have an interesting dynamic between these two robbers because one mm-hmm. of them is unable to he's he's hearing impaired and it seems that that's because of of the war and like he had a war injury and the other guy really exploits that and takes advantage of the fact that I'm sorry, I'm blanking on their two names, but really takes advantage of his his partner and his his disability basically and his inability to really communicate well with other people like the the two of them are in this really disturbing concerning um um codependent relationship 
that makes them extra dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the it's Wade. Wade is the um the kind of head bad okay, guy. Okay, yeah. And and Barney and Barney is actually played by Nigel Stock, who uh, if you watch British films, he he was Doctor Watson in a whole bunch of um, mm. uh, adaptations, Sherlock Holmes adaptations. But he's he's one of actually a lot of these actors are very much like character actors and studio yeah. players for for Arthur Rank. Um, so you, uh, like I I recognize a number of them. Just like I've seen that person somewhere in something. Like yeah, like people, their faces yeah. are all familiar, even if I didn't know their names. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I I think that relationship is is really fascinating because you do get it's it's it is a codependent relationship. And Barney, the the, the man who's hearing impaired, isn't a bad person. Like you, he's he's kind of been brought in almost on accident. And because he needs the money, he wants the money to go away to New Zealand and he doesn't want to kill anybody. He has, he's never wanted to kill anybody. He's barely a criminal, but he's kind of wound up as one and it's horrifying to him. And, and he begins to push back and, and there's this push and pull that goes on between the two of them with Wade, who is getting crazier and crazier really as the film goes on. He's already pretty on edge at the beginning. Like he Um, gets more desperate as time goes on. That just makes him more dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do, I do agree. It's, it, it is a film where, you know, you kind of know like, okay, she's going to, something's going to happen. The criminals are going to get caught. Right. But there isn't a big question of how and when, and that's where the tension lies because we do have all of these different things in play. And it's like, at what point is someone going to realize what's happening? Because no one on screen has all of the information. Um, and so it isn't, it's not even a race against the clock in the, in the same way. So like when, uh, her husband is finally like, Hey, my wife's missing. (laughs) Like, I can't find her. She doesn't seem to be anywhere that she should be. He gets increasingly panicked, um, Mm -hmm. thinking that something has happened to her. And so we've got a, a race there, but even then he doesn't know the degree of danger that she's in. Right. She, she doesn't know. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so this is all just like such a, it, it really is so well-developed and, but it also finds time for some, some humor as well that kind of breaks up the tension, but in some ways also heightens it a little bit too. Cause you have this character of granny. She's this old lady <laughs> in the women's ward of this hospital who everyone just calls granny. Who knows what her actual name is? It's just granny. And she keeps insisting that she sees men outside and men everywhere. And this hospital's full of men <laughs> and nobody will listen to her. Cause she just sounds like a crazy old lady. I love she, <laughs> justice for granny. Yes. Justice for granny. She, she does have a name. She's Mrs. Hudson, but she doesn't, oh. she doesn't even have a first name, but she, but justice for granny. Ju- granny knew what the fuck was going on. Granny tried to protect people. Mm-hmm. You needed yeah. to listen to Granny, and she was right. The the there are like at at a, at a certain point, there's like five men hiding outside. Yeah, <laughs> for different reasons. Yeah, there's men everywhere. She's correct, and well, and that's the thing. I think that's that's also really, um, at least for me, just really made this such a 
such a movie that I could connect with was because you have this woman who knows what she's talking about and everyone dismisses her for various reasons, mostly just because she's old, I guess, and she's sick in the hospital. So she must also be crazy. Um, And so they just will not listen to her, even though there's a woman who's here unconscious and nobody knows why. And it's like, wouldn't you be open to like, maybe someone's after her. She got hit by a bus running away from somebody. (laughs) Like, I don't know. It just it, it 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 rang true to me that they would just completely dismiss Granny while also being very frustrating that they would because they should at least, you know, at least mm-hmm. check out her story before just saying that she's crazy and giving her sleeping pills. Well, and and there are a couple of points where they do. They go out to like, okay, yes, we'll go check the grounds right outside the window, and like they come across the one guy who's been wandering around because his wife is in labor. And they mm, won't let yeah. him in. And With twins. The, yeah. And the nurse like finally gets him to go to the waiting room. And like, and the nurse also knows that her boyfriend, who's this American soldier, is wandering around as well. Um, and so of course she doesn't want him to get caught <laughs> as right. she, like hanging out outside, but she knows that he's not dangerous, that there's nothing like that's threatening or anything like that. So it it again, it's that really well constructed that. And it it ups this tension. It creates humor as well, but it also creates this tension of like, we know that there's a killer lurking outside. Right. um, But there are all of these other things that are happening that have nothing to do with that, that kind of interrupt um, the the danger. And that again, heighten the tension. It it makes things, it it increases everything. Yeah. Um, But but even like when it gets to the point where granny says, or Mrs. Hudson says, there was a man that came in that window or came in that door and was trying to hurt that girl who's unconscious and he keeps coming in every time your back is turned and they're like oh okay well we'll just lock the door then <laughs> like <laughs> that doesn't solve the problem he's still out there and you're still not listening and it's not until the little girl wakes up and starts like confirming the story that they're like oh wait maybe we should listen now I, I also do really like the the little element of the one nurse who's always running and mm-hmm. the matron, the matron keeps on telling her, why are you running? Stop <laughs> running. Don't run. Just walk. And then finally, like nearing the end of the film, it's just like, okay, I want you to go and do this and run. <laughs> it's just very, it's a, it's a neat little, little thing that I think gets interjected there. Yeah. Um, and, and props to the screenwriter is Janet Green. Uh, also, also a, a female. <laughs> so it's uh there there's a lot of very nice um very nice humor that that uh fits into that and i guess that janet green was also a screenwriter for basil dearden um who's a, a british filmmaker and she wrote the screenplays for sapphire and victim both of which are, are excellent films if you've never seen either one of those films they are fantastic um but again women are good at stuff <laughs> yes women are good at stuff women make good movies they really do they should get to make more of them. Let's talk about one more. Yes. So uh, now we want to kind of change gears a little bit. This is a very male-centric story. Um, Mikey and Nikki from 1976, directed by Elaine May. Um, and this is uh, this is an inter- We've talked about Elaine May before. Uh, we did an episode about her, but uh, this wasn't one of the films that we included in that conversation. But um, this 
stars uh, Peter Falk and John Cassavetes as the title characters of Mikey and Nikki. And basically, Nikki's on the run. Uh, he's done something. And the mob's after him. And uh, he calls up Mikey, desperate for help. They've been friends since childhood. And so Mikey is helping him out. There's another guy, Kenny, played by Ned Beatty, who's kind of circling around. You don't really know what exactly uh, is is happening there until later on in the film. But um, but ultimately, this I mean, this is a movie about a guy who's who's hiding and and trying to get out of town. But um, really, it's about the relationship between these two men who have known each other for many years and and um, and really kind of the end of of that i guess is is the best way to say it so um uh Lauren, what are your what are your uh overall general thoughts about mikey and nikki well i actually want to ask you something karen Did, okay. is this the first time that you've seen mikey and nikki or have you seen it before it was the first time i've seen it all the way through i've started watching okay. it before and it was i think actually around the time we were doing our elaine may episode and it was um it just was the wrong time for me. It's a great movie, mm -hmm. but it was just like one of those where if you're not fully alert and wide awake to watch it, you just, it's, there's a lot of talking. Yeah. And <laughs> there's a lot of talking. Yeah. Like that's what this movie is. It's, it's, it's men in a room talking, sometimes fighting. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you have to be alert and, and yeah. able to, to really focus on that. And at the time I tried to watch it, I wasn't. And then I think in my brain, it just kind of translated into like, oh, I'm just not ready for this film over and over again. So I was glad that we chose this as one of our movies this week, because it's one that I've been wanting to really sit down and, and watch, but I hadn't, um, hadn't mm -hmm. put that time in. So I, I finally watched it yesterday for the first time all the way through. And oh my gosh, I thought it was great. I really loved it. I really love the dynamic between Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. I think they're yeah. so good together. I think that the the history of their relationship really comes through in the way that they not just in the way that they speak to each other or the things that they say, but in the things that they don't say, the way that they look at each other, the way that they just like move um around each other too. Mm -hmm. Um it's and the way that they talk about each other to other people. So it's uh and it's also again another very intense movie because you know that that Nikki is, you know, he's a target. He's someone's after him and uh and it, there's this tension of will he get away or is he going to die at the end of this and um I think it's developed very, very well. Elaine May is, I, I mean, she finally got a, a honorary Oscar last year. Well-deserved. She should have, you know, she should have been honored way sooner, but um, it's, it feels like she's finally getting a reappraisal, but I just imagine the kind of career she could have had if she was appreciated at the time for how skilled she was as a filmmaker. Yeah, she is horrifically underrated. And I every time I, I said this on Blue Sky, I think recently, every time I watch an Elaine May film, I am both in awe of her talent and also like incandescently angry 
at the yeah. way she has been treated and the way that she was treated at the time, the way that critics have treated her and the fact that, yeah, she's finally getting a reappraisal and she's finally getting the accolades that she deserves. But like this, this film is right up there for me with mean streets. It's right mm-hmm. up there for a taxi driver. This is a truly Chinatown, you know, this is a truly great work of 1970s filmmaking. Yeah. And and the performances that she gets out of Cassavetes and Falk are are remarkable. Like you say, she uses that friendship and that the affection that they have for each other and the intensity of that relationship so well. And it's so you you believe that these are two men that have this long, complicated history with each other. Mm-hmm. And have this deep love for each other and also this very intense anger with one another for good reason, for like a whole bunch of different reasons. Yeah. And you can see that you you see that in their performances. You see the shifting of the emotions on their faces, sometimes from one second to the next. And she captures that so well. And, and you know, she builds up that tension and that like what not just what is going to happen to them in the external plot but how is it going to happen and what will these little moments actually lead to? Because a lot of what happens in the film is very much about little moments. It's things that they say to each other. It's words that then, you know, begin spiraling out of control or turn into a fight or turn into, you know, breaking a watch or going to a graveyard or winding up in the wrong part of town and and things like that and it gets more and more intense as as the film goes on but it's very believable um mm-hmm. it's a it's a great script elaine may wrote the script herself and again you get this depth of the relationship uh without being needing to be told about it like we don't see their past together we don't see anything outside of this one night basically uh, this one night in early morning and what happens to the two of them. But we get everything that we need to know about the plot and what is going on and what is happening. It doesn't really matter why the mob is after Nikki. Um, what matters is that the mob is after Nikki and that he's gone to Mikey for help. And yeah. what all of that means, like the the whole the opening sequence where where uh, uh, Mikey goes to the the pharmacy or the the cafe to get him cream because mm. he's got an ulcer. Like it's this combination of care and also anger. Yeah. And, and also stress because one of the reasons why I wanted to know if, if you'd seen this before is uh, this is the second time I've watched it. And I loved the film when I first saw it, but there were things that I missed in my initial viewing of the film. I think because there's so much dialogue and there's so much like not being said um, that it's easy to miss some of the things that are actually happening and some of the nuance of the emotions. Um, because the question that begins to come up throughout this throughout the film is, is Mikey actually trying to get Nikki killed, trying to get him into a position where he's going to be shot? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? And will he do that? Is that, is that what's going to happen? Yeah. Uh, and I missed some of that, particularly in the early scenes, but I think in a rewatch, you begin to see those, that tension developing um, in particularly in Peter Falk's performance and how he reacts to things. There were a couple of times early on where I wondered if, if Mikey was the one that was sent to kill Nikki and his, and if maybe 
his solution was like, oh, if I can get you to leave town, then I can just say I didn't find you, you know, or something. Um, I kind of did wonder that, but um, but it wasn't anything. I didn't know where it was going. So, um, mm. so when you get the like, so, you know, Ned Beatty is is following them, um, this this other guy and once you get to the point where they have that conversation i was like okay all right yeah this makes sense this this totally makes sense and i think that it was developed well and i think that mikey's relationship with nikki really does kind of bridge that in a way that um you get the tragedy of the situation but also um not exactly sure how to explain what i want to say but i i just i really think that that um well actually before i get to that i want to back up to just your point about you know we've seen so many mafia movies by this point and so like not knowing what nikki did not knowing why the mob is after him we don't need to know all we know all we need to know is that he pissed them off enough that they want to just kill him and so for Mikey to be in the situation where not only does he know because Nikki's, you know, called him for help, but he he is very in the middle of all of this. And so Peter Falk does such a good job of really letting you see the the emotional uh, kind of torment that he's going through, knowing that, like, whatever Nikki did, he's going to have to answer for it. He's going to have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that has to kind of be there for that to happen. And whether he's the one that has to pull the trigger or not, which ultimately he's not, but, um, but either way, like you really get the sense of the weight that's on him. And as, as things go throughout the night, like as that just gets, you get closer and closer to kind of this, this inevitability, uh, you really see the toll that that's taking on Mikey and it's such credit to Peter Falk for that. I think he just does Mm -hmm. such a great job of conveying this, this level of, of emotion that he needs for, for, to really sell this, this character. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's such an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Cause, cause Nikki, you really do want to punch him like numerous (laughs) times. Like just like, Oh my God, this guy, but yeah, they, they get that that history and those moments where it's interesting because there's a lot of denial going on in, in Mikey's character as well, because he even says things like, like, you know, they, they talk about, Oh, we've known each other since we were kids. And he, and then I think Nikki makes a reference to, um, to Mikey's brother. Yeah. His brother Izzy. Yeah. His brother Izzy died when he was a child. And they have this like, this moment of like realizing how much they have experienced together and Nikki's presence with Mikey at these moments in his life that really have defined him, have haunted him, et cetera. And knowing that no one else experienced that. And I, they even have a conversation about no one else experienced their childhood. Right. That, and, and they even talk about most of the people that they were with at that time are dead. Yeah. Uh, and so there is this like this denial going on 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 Mikey's part that like no that's not true you don't remember that like you you weren't there etc and so and then he kind of shifts to like well I, I tell my wife about these things like my wife knows these things but again it's it's at that 
that undercurrent of this is a deep and long-term relationship that these two people have had with each other and they've lost a great deal and they're losing each other. And there, there is that on the point of Mikey's knowledge, there is that sense of like, he's, you know, is he, or is he not leading his friend into death? And what does that mean? Not just to his friend, but to himself. Right. Uh, it's really moving and very, subtle and nuanced and some of the conversations if you're just not able to pay attention you you almost miss it but it builds to this like amazing emotional moment and is just it, it's it's such a fantastic film like it really is it, it is all about emotions and it, that is where i think elaine may kind of gets away from you know the godfather or you know, maybe more closer to mean streets or something like that, where it's much less about the externalization of, of violence and more about the intensity of these emotions and these friendships. Yes. Although there is one scene I'd like to talk about that uh, involves the two yeah. of them letting their emotions bubble over into a fist fight in the street. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was watching it, like, it, it's a kind of intense fight, but it also gets very silly because like, and not, not in a, like, I don't know how to describe, how to describe it if you haven't seen this, but, um, but it's, it, it's the silly kind of fight of two men who just have a lot of just like anger they're trying to get out, but aren't actually trying to hurt each other. So they end up like down on the ground, mm -hmm. like just, just like wrestling, but like, it's so goofy and then they get back up and one of them just slaps the other. And it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's silly because of the fact that it's like, yeah. And I, I was commenting to you about this. Um, I was thinking about the scene in Bridget Jones's diary where <laughs> Daniel played by Hugh Grant and Mark played by Colin Firth get into a fist fight in the street. And I'm sure that it's taken from this movie. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it ends up there's a crowd around in, in Bridget Jones's diary, but um, but it ends up like going through a restaurant, all this stuff. But it's like the goofiest, dumbest boys fighting like they think they look so cool and they're just trying to get this out. But they actually look like complete <laughs> idiots. And I was thinking about that and I just thought about the both of these two scenes and how these are both in movies directed by women and mm -hmm. how you know men think they look so cool when they're fist fighting and women can see like there's nothing cool about that you look like idiots and just knock it off and just go go walk away take a breath <laughs> and come back you know and i it's, just oh sorry that was it's very real it's yeah. very real yeah <laughs> that's the thing like if it had been a real knockdown drag out fist fight it wouldn't have made any sense because these two guys do care deeply about each other and they've had some very emotional conversations along the way and i mean they're at this point they're pissed at each other but um but ultimately neither one of them wants to actually hurt the other so it makes sense that their that their fight would end up being just you know silly and kind of ridiculous there, there's one point i think where cassavetes actually slips and mm -hmm. like he fall he slips in a puddle and he falls down and like yeah it's it's very it's very it's real and and i, th I think you make a good point that they don't actually want to hurt each other they do want to hurt each other but they don't yeah they, so it is it's they're they're 
grappling and like at one point and for a little while they're almost not fighting like one of those just like shoving the other and then they're like walking down the street and then they turn around like shove each other again and and so it is this like you know how how far are they gonna go they're not they're not gonna hurt each other but they are you know it it is that that tension um and yes i i think it it very much kind of pulls away from all of that posturing that that we see so much in films like this about like men being again men being tough and it's just like you're you're not you're not tough you look silly it's silly this is a ridiculous fight but it also is very real to their emotions in that moment Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) you're not cool (laughs) you're not cool it's okay just hug Well, and it's funny, too, because I think about, like, the fights that would break out when I was in school, you know, and, like, everyone would circle around and watch the fight and be two boys who were just, like, circling each other, trying to, like, not be the one to throw the first punch, not be the one to get punched first also, (laughs) (laughs) and then they'd end up, like, in this weird hug wrestle thing. That's what real that's what real fights actually are. Yes. For the mo- like unless you've got two people who really know what they're doing and are like in a in a situation where they can show what they're they know what they're doing, very often normal people fight like that. That's yes. how when you actually get into a physical altercation, that's what it looks like. It's stupid. It's exactly. really stupid. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so do we I guess we should talk a little bit about the ending? I mean, we we can, yeah, definitely. I think we might want to warn people about that we're going to talk about the ending. So we're we? going to talk about or, the ending. <laughs> yeah, we're going to spoil the ending. So if you haven't seen Mikey and Nikki, I don't, I don't think that this. I mean, now I've seen it. I don't know, but I don't think this ruins the experience of watching it if no. you know what's going to happen. But um, but if you have not seen it and don't want to be spoiled, fast forward a little bit, um, maybe like five minutes. So. Um, we end up at Mikey's house. Mikey goes home. He's talking to his wife, um, filling her in on some of what's happened. He's they've they've split up from each other. Mikey and Nikki are not together at this point. And um, but then Nikki shows up at the house and is pounding on the door, begging for is it Anne, the wife. Anyway, begging sorry, for her. Sorry, I'm. Ju- I was just trying to check. Uh, yes, Annie. Yeah, begging for her to let him in, and Mikey's on the other side of the door, like whispering, "Don't let him in. Do not let him in." And of course, then Nikki gets shot on Mikey's doorstep, not by Mikey, but gets shot on the doorstep by Ned Beatty, who's been following him all along, and. I think like, I mean, that's really where the movie just ends, like end roll yeah. credits. But I, I think that in that moment, there's just so much, again, credit to Peter Falk because there's so much emotion in him as he knows this is the end. He knows this is going to happen. There's nothing he can do to stop it. He's not even going to try at this point. Um, He just has to, has to let that happen. And he's just had this emotional conversation with his wife where he's basically told her, you know, about his brother. Um, and, and it's just, again, I think just to bring it back around to what we were talking about a minute ago, there's, there's this, 
this concept that like people live on after they die as long as people remember them. And for Mikey, Nikki is now the only other person who remembers his brother. Mm-hmm. And that clearly means something so, so deeply to him because he's telling his wife about his brother now. But you get that sense that it's, it's like the extra weight and tragedy of Nikki's death is it's, it's one more step away from, from his brother who died so long ago yeah. at such a young age and how just how deeply that hurts him and how, how much that means to him. And yeah, then, it's sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to finish with, and I just find it so fascinating because I think that that's such a, another credit to Elaine May to make that such an important point. It's not just like, oh, I'm sad I'm losing my friend. It's I'm sad I'm losing this last connection to mm-hmm. my brother. And and to the to the past, like yeah. there there's it's that it's the buildup of that that childhood that shared past, right? And they talk at one point about Mikey being the person who sat up with Nikki when his mother died. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the things that they remember and things that they remember imperfectly too. So like, like Nikki mentions, oh, you remember we made fun of Izzy because he, he was bald because he'd lost all of his hair and we called him Baldy and like, cause they were kids. They were like, you right. know, they were children. Um, and then he, he's, and that those memories and those little moments that are just dead now that are gone and that the only Mikey doesn't have anyone to share that with anymore. He's lost that. Yeah. it's it's really yeah it, it portrays that the depth of that grief of losing that shared past and all of the things that made up their friendship um and that is just you know fading away basically and there's not that that's the thing there's nothing he can do at that point he can't let him in right um he can't if he opens the door he's gonna wind up dead like his family is going to wind up dead yeah and he makes that choice he can't save his friend at that point um, but even then, you know, he's saying, you know, he even, he mutters, he's just like, run away, you idiot, <laughs> like run. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, he's gonna, he's gonna come here and you've got, and he knows that, that the Ned Beatty character is circling the block, um, and is looking for him and is thinking like, oh, he's going to come to, to Mikey's house. Yeah. Um, he's just like, just run, just run away. Like, don't stay here. And, but there's nothing he can do about it. Um, and it's it's really heartbreaking. It's a wonderfully made scene, and it's so profound and so sad. Yeah, it's so true. All right. Um, well, any final thoughts about Mikey and Nikki? Uh, just just wanted to say that Mikey and Nikki was chopped up by Paramount. Paramount yeah, got suck. mad at Paramount got mad at Elaine May. She ended up stealing two reels of it and hiding it. <laughs> Uh, they finally got a hold of it and they just basically chopped it up and sent it out. It got panned. Um, it's finally been put back together. That's the version that is on Criterion now. And that's that's the film that is really Mikey and Nikki. And again, makes me so fucking mad because this film should have been nominated for fucking Oscars. Mm-hmm. And like given the amount of attention and love that it really deserves. And I'm glad that it's getting that now. I've seen so many people talk about it. Um but it should have happened in 1976. It shouldn't be happening like now. Oh yeah. Could you imagine this movie like competing against Rocky, you know, like, cause that's the year, you know, it just, it would have been a competition. It really would have. 
it's 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 maddening but i i mean i guess the, i am glad that you know for all of the all three of the female directors that we've talked about all three of them are getting have gotten reappraisals fairly recently mm-hmm. and it is quite obvious that all three of them has been dismissed because they're women yeah um like i don't think you cannot make an argument that like oh no it was just like the films weren't that good it's like well no that's bullshit and also i've seen plenty of male filmmakers who are more highly regarded who've made much worse films Mm -hmm. uh but the films are great the these these women have been ignored because they're women and i'm glad that they're getting reappraisals but they should not they shouldn't be getting reappraisals they should have been appraised when the films were actually released and they should have been given their place in history alongside martin scorsese and alfred hitchcock and michael curtis and all of these other men yeah. I just think about all the films that never got made because of the fact that they were dismissed at in their time, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. That's going to wrap things up for this week, but um, we really appreciate you, you listening with us and, and, and enjoying this conversation. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Um all three of these films are available for streaming. So we hope you'll, you'll check them out. Um, you uh, can support the show. And we hope that you will. We want to thank our patrons who, who keep the lights on and make this possible. They are Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Lauren, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. If you would like to join them, become a patron too, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame. And there you get early access to episodes, you get bonus episodes. We've actually got one that we're going to be putting out this week. Um, And you also get some buttons and fun things like that. So uh, go to Patreon and sign up. You can also support the show through our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod or ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. And if you'd like to check out our other work, you can go to our website, citizendamepod.com. And uh, you can also reach out to us lots of ways. You can email us, citizendamepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on the social medias. We are technically on Twitter. Uh, We're definitely on Instagram (laughs) and uh, Blue Sky Citizen Dame Pod. And we are on Letterboxd. We love Letterboxd. It's so much fun. We're there at Citizen Dame. We are a Letterboxd HQ. And we do keep a running list of the movies that we talk about on the podcast each month. So this month, our November list, you can check that out if you're looking for what was that movie and where can I watch it? You can you can just go on, find our list and and look it up. Um, you can also find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on the various socials at LH Business. And I am on socials at Karen M. Peterson. So that's going to wrap things up. We hope you have a great week and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Then the second time I met him, uh, that's a long story. Uh, we might as well tell it. And if it's too long, you'll cut it out. Uh, Elaine May had written a script called Mikey and Nikki. Uh, I thought it was a tremendous, tremendous script. And Elaine and I thought that John would be wonderful to play in it. And I made a meeting with John. It was in the Paramount Commissary. And uh, I told him, Elaine wrote the script, and we would like you to be in it, and uh, I'm here to ask you whether you'd be interested in it. He said, I'll do it. 
I said, John, this is serious business here. She spent a lot of time on this script, and uh, I, I, th th this is very important to me. So I'm asking you whether you'd be interested in it. And he said, I said, I'd do it. No, I said, no. No, you want to, why don't you ask some, some questions, some intelligent questions about the project and about the part. And, uh, it's too quick. I, it, it, I'll do it. Well, he started out rather calmly. But by the time he finished, he was up on top of the table. I can't, I, it's on television, so I can't tell you exactly what he said. No. no, I can't tell you exactly what he said. But the gist of it was, do you think I'm like you, worried about whether or not it's gonna be a success? Do you think I'm worried that maybe my career will be furthered by this? Do you think blah, 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 and he got further and further away, and he ended up by saying, are you going to be in it? Yes. Did she write it? Yes. Is she going to direct it? Yes. What else do I have to know? Gee, I thought, well, boy, this is a hell of a guy. This is one hell of a guy. So then we sat down, we continued eating. 